Welcome. How are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. Well, I'm excited to get to kick us off in the book of uh, Ephesians this morning. Um, we're kind of going into a new series here. We're, um, we're going to take the next kind of few weeks up until Easter, um, sprinkle in with a couple of teaching of Rick's kind of practices that we, we talked about Sabbath last week, and he's going to sprinkle a couple of those in over the next couple of months. But um, for the most part, we're just going to be going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and I'm really excited. Um, actually, all of us as leaders are excited because of the content of the book and the timing. Um, there's a lot of things about it that are really beautiful. So we've kind of titled this series Living the Gospel Story because the book of Ephesians, really, um, it's, it breaks up into really two nice, even chunks. Um, the first three chapters are really all about our identity and purpose in Christ, which is the gospel story. And then the, the latter chapters, four through six, are about how to live those, that new identity out, how to actually apply it and live it in our lives. And that's part of the reason why we, we, we picked this, the uh, book, um, because it pairs really nicely with the series that, that we've been doing and talking about, which is um, Rick did a few weeks about choosing your life and about like thinking about our lives and how we want to live intentionally for Jesus. This book is going to um, come at us with scripture to actually take us deeper into those, into those truths and concepts, and, and I'm really excited. So let's, um, I'll pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive right in in verse 1. God, I thank you so much for your wisdom. I thank you for your presence with us. I ask that you would just come in power today. I ask that you would show up and be in our midst, God, and that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would show us what it means to live out of this new identity that we have. God, that you would actually awaken us again to what it means to live out your story, to even what it means to understand what the gospel is and, and how it applies to our lives. And so we just pray today as we open your word that you would be here. We ask that you would just um, speak to us, God, that you would minister, that you'd comfort and encourage, that you would correct, that you would um, just make us strong in you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your, your patience with us and your grace. And we ask that you would just come in power today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, the book of Ephesians, um, we're going we're gonna to cover the first 10 verses today. And then we're just, you know, um, as we go, um, we're going we're gonna to be breaking up the book into smaller chunks and kind of taking on it. And the first... Um, First section, really, the title "Naked and Unashamed" won't won't be clear from reading the scripture necessarily, but we're gonna um, I'm gonna tie it all into some verses in Genesis, and I'm really excited to be able to share today. Um, first of all, just to give you guys a little bit of an introduction to Ephesians and why we're going through it, this kind of came about um, around Christmas time. Some of the elders and leaders of the church we were discussing kind of the men's retreat for this year. The um, the one that's happening in April, um, which I highly encourage you if you're a man and you want to go deeper in Jesus. Um, actually, a lot of the themes um, of the Wild at Heart curriculum that we were discussing align really beautifully with the book of Ephesians in terms of finding our identity in Christ and our purpose and then learning to live out that purpose. So we were having discussions about the men's retreat. And then um, along the way, we kind of discovered the book of Ephesians and how it aligned with a lot of those principles. And then we started realizing, man, maybe God's calling us. Actually, this is, you know, the men's retreat's coming up, but also for the entire church. This is something that's really important and valuable in terms of what it means to be disciples, what it means to live as disciples. So that's kind of why we're kind of going through it. The book of Ephesians is one of the, the two books in the New Testament that really lay out a full picture of the Christian life. The other one being Romans, which is probably the more systematic and the longer 
of the two. Um, but Ephesians is nice and compact, and it, and it really builds this argument throughout of what, what Jesus, what God accomplished, what Jesus did for us, and then what that means to actually put that into practice. And so I, uh, one of the things that we love about it is that it, it does present us a fuller picture. Some of the other letters um, are targeted maybe at specific things going on in congregations or specific issues. That, um, but the Ephesians is nice because it kind of packs in, one, in six chapters like this full story of what God has done through Christ and then how we live it out. And so we're really excited to kind of to kind of um, to kind of get into it. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Um, verse one, Ephesians. I'm going to read it here. It says from Paul, by the will of God, apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's people at Ephesus, to the faithful incorporated in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pretty standard greeting that Paul opens a lot of his letters with, which is just asserting his apostleship and saying, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm an authority, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, and this is to God's people at Ephesus, to the faithful, to the corporate. And I want to remind us of that because right off the bat, we're going to get into the content of the gospel. And a lot of times I think we think that the gospel, the good news is, you know, we've, at least I grew up thinking, oh, the gospel is what, you know, what you preach to non-believers so they can believe in Jesus and get saved. But it's interesting here because Paul actually says, He's writing to the faithful, to the people who already believe in God, the people who already believe in Jesus. And these truths that he's, that he's speaking are not just for non-believers. They're actually the good news, the content of the good news, the gospel is that Christ is king and his kingdom is coming. It's begun now and it's going to come in fullness one day. But the blessings of heaven invade earth through Jesus. And the, the things he's talking about in terms of our identity in Christ are not just for the non-believer or the, the unchurched. It's actually for the church to build up God's people. And so it's good to be reminded of that as we get into this. Because some of the stuff you're going to see and go, whoa, whoa, you know, like we almost have this mindset of this is for non-believers. But it's actually for his church, for his people to be built up, to be encouraged in. And, and we'll see that. So... Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has conferred on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ to be his people, to be without blemish in his sight, to be full of love. I love this here, this, this picture that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has been conferred on us, has been given to us in Christ. Because of Jesus and what he's done, as we choose to follow Jesus, we're given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And I want to camp out on that a minute because if you're like me and you're going through your daily life, your week, it's like, I don't really feel like every spiritual blessing is mine. <laughs> Oftentimes I feel like, man, I'm in over my head or life is hard or wow, uh, I don't feel spiritual. Uh, I feel normal. I feel like I'm just you know, grinding out work or grinding out just life, you know, and it's, it's, as I was, you know, studying this and looking at it, it was just, it occurred to me, like, this is crazy that we are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Why don't, why doesn't my life look more like every spiritual blessing is mine? And we're going to connect some of those reasons why today and start to get into that. But I want to just remind us that this is something that God has given to us, regardless of whether we feel like it is ours fully or whether we fully stepped into it, we have been given this. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Everything that God could give us, he has given us in his son, Jesus. 
And that's, that's amazing if you think about it. If you stop and think about what does every spiritual blessing mean? Every, every amount of love and grace and forgiveness and power and spiritual opportunity and spiritual gifting has been given to us. And God's going to join that up with us through this book to go, okay, then how do we grab hold of those things? How do we actually grab hold of them and, and lay hold on them and actually start to walk in them? And we're never going to be perfect, right? We're never going to actually achieve perfection where, we, where we, we just, we're spiritual all the time and we're perfect. But I want to remind us of that because oftentimes life feels like we're missing out or that we, we don't, we're not fully um, developed in those things. Um, in verse 5, it continues, and he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ. This was his will and pleasure in order that the glory of his gracious gifts so graciously conferred on us and his beloved might redound to his praise. In Christ, our release is secured and our sins forgiven through the shedding of his blood and the richness of his grace. God has lavished on us all wisdom and insight. I love this here. Um, the language that he uses to describe how we got saved is not, you know, sometimes Paul um, and he will get into it later in the book, and especially in Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of it. He'll talk about um, this idea of um, justification and how he is, we're justified, which is an important legal declaration over us that God declares. But I, but I love that the language that he uses first to describe us being saved is he predestined us to be adopted as his children. It's the language of family and of love. Like if you think of the, the, the heart of an, an adoptive parent or father or mother that has chosen to adopt, or even you know, those people that have chosen to, to do foster care, which I think in some ways, as a dad myself, would be even harder <laughs> to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this kid in this really hard situation, but knowing that the kid in a year or in six months or two years could just be had to go back to their, their birth parents, which is good if the birth parents are, you know, if there's a, but it would be hard. It would be emotionally gut-wrenching, right? But here we see God, his love is described as an adoptive parent, as someone who predestined us to be adopted as his children. And so it's not only just like, hey, I'm bringing you in and I'm going to care for you. It's like, you're, no, you're part of my family now. You're actually become part of God's family, and I, I think oftentimes, if you're like me, I read through this and I just go, oh, yeah, that's cool. Wow, you know, like, we are, and I think of the love I have for my kids, that I would do anything for them, and I just love them so much it hurts, and I'm thinking, wow, God actually loves me that much. He loves us that much, that he would choose us and say, I'm going to, I'm not just going to bring you in and put a, you know, take care of you and give you, you know, provisions and sustenance. I'm actually going to make you part of my family, <laughs> I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you in and give you everything that is mine is now yours. And that's what God did for us. That identity, this is core to our identity as Christians. And it's, and it's, it's core to understand, even as Christians that have already been adopted, maybe we were adopted 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or even more. I mean, there's people that have, in this room, I mean, how many of you guys have been walking with Jesus for, for 40 years? Wow, 50 years? Wow, 30 years, 20, 10, wow. If you think about that, how about five, past five years? So we have some, we have some people that have been walking with God for quite a, quite a time, right? But Paul is coming to us today saying, hey, God has adopted you as his, chi- as his child. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that 
in, in the midst of our daily lives and the busyness of our culture and the way that we live, we forget that God, that God has adopted us, that he's made us his children, that he's given us every, every, the glory of his gracious gift. Everything is given to us. This is incredible. I'll, I'll finish out the section here. He says, he has made known to us his secret purpose. So he, God had this secret purpose, but he made it known to us. In accordance with the plan which he determined beforehand in Christ to be put into effect when the time was ripe, namely, that the universe, everything in heaven and on earth, might be brought into a unity in Christ. What I love here is this passage begins with this intimate picture of family, and it, and it ends in verse 10 with the most cosmic plan that we could ever think of which is kind of like Paul's unified theory of uh, everything. It's like God, he's, he's going from, you're adopted into God's family, this relational, you know, beautiful, like deeply um, moving language of imagery of a father and a son or a mom and a daughter adopting a child to go now that the universe, everything in heaven and on earth might be brought into a unity in Christ. And, and I think this, this explains for us the fullness of the picture of the good news. The good news is not just, again, it's not just a track that you give someone to go, hey, get in the door, get saved, go to heaven. And actually, even in this passage, we see like, that heaven and earth is going to be brought to a unity. The, the goal of the kingdom, the goal of the good news, of the goal of the gospel is actually that God is going to make everything right in the whole universe. That, that eventually heaven is right now a temporary resting place, a temporary place where people who believe in Jesus, who believe in God, are waiting with him. But they're going to be, we're going to be united to our earthly bodies someday, the way Jesus was in his resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15 goes into that in depth. And we're actually going to inhabit a remade earth, an earth where heaven and earth are brought together. This picture is painted in the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21 and 22. We see heaven and earth come together. We see this New Jerusalem new heavens and new earth, a renewed creation that we are going to inhabit as God's people. This is God's plan. This is God's, the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the good news. And what I love about that is that it encompasses all of life, right? It's not just, God doesn't just save us in a spiritual sense and then leave us kind of to fend for ourselves in this life as we're, we're sweating it out, living daily life. God's actually joining up and saying, no, actually, you're adopted into my family, and now I'm giving you all the resources that you need to begin to live out this new life in your daily lives, in the midst of changing poopy diapers and potty training and in the midst of loss and death and famine and all the things that we experience. Um, I'm potty trained. You know, our son just got potty trained, our youngest son, so that's, that's why I brought it up. Um, that's why he's excited. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, <laughs> but that, you know, like the daily life part is oftentimes the, the part that's disconnected from our faith is we think, oh, I'm spiritual, you know, um, there's a spiritual life that we live and then there's this earthly life that we live. And God, even in, in the ministry of Jesus, if you look through his ministry, he was always trying to, to bring heaven and earth together. When he was healing people, that was painting a picture for us. It's like, hey, you're going to be healed someday. Everyone's going to be healed someday. Everyone's going to live in new bodies someday that are, that are not tarnished by death or cancer or, or disease or any of that stuff. And he started to paint this picture for us of a, a new life where God's presence, all the spiritual blessings of heaven are actually ours 
in the physical reality because all of it is, belongs to God. And it's exciting to think about what that's going to be like. And he, I love that he ends there because he's like hinting at this, this picture for us, right? Is that it begins with this relational sense in which God is ours, we're his. And then it begins to bleed out. And actually, it's, this is kind of a microcosm right here of the whole book of Ephesians because he starts out, by the end of chapter 3, we're going to reach the height of this prayer that Paul prays that's powerful, talking about the breadth and depth and love of God. And then he's going to say in, verse, in chapter 4, therefore, looking at earthly life now, now how does this begin to actually change the way we live, that we live a new way, that we're living the gospel story, not our story? So that's the first 10 verses. And, and, and what I want to do is I'm going to kind of paint a picture of this. There's a, um, some concepts that God has just been speaking to me over the past couple of weeks that I want to walk us through that, that pertain to this passage in, in Ephesians. And really, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 through 3 to kind of um, look at it. So let's, if you have a Bible flip there, the verses are going to be up on the screen. So if you don't want to flip around on your phone or your Bible, then that's fine. Um, but I want to look at the first humans as a lens to unpack the story that Paul's unpacking in, in Ephesians. So Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish, in the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Here in the midst of creation, so there's two kind of creation accounts in the Bible, in Genesis. One is in, in, Genesis, 1, 20, uh, in the Genesis 1, and then he retells some of the creation story in Genesis 2, but from a different lens. There's a lot, there's a lot of different perspectives there. Um, it's really interesting. But here, he talks about creating the first humans. In, in verse, uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, it's a more intimate picture of that. But right here, what I love is that f- these first humans were created in the image of God. They were created in God's image, the Imago Dei. That's where we get that language, that we were created in God's image. And he created them, male and female. And what I love here in verse 28 is that God blessed them and said to them. And then he spoke to them and gave them this kind of, this kind of uh, mandate to go and subdue earth, have dominion over the fish, to rule over creation together as men and women, male and female, to rule as co-equals to rule creation. But what I love in verse 28 is that he says God blessed them. And I, and I actually was thinking about that because... God's blessing here was not based on any merit or performance or anything that they did. Uh, the first man and first woman, when God created them, they had done nothing. <laughs> they, they were just, they were fresh out of the oven, right? They were just brand new. They're, they had done nothing. There's no sin, but they hadn't even done anything and God blessed them. And I think we oftentimes think of God's blessing as that's conferred on those who are most worthy or who, those who do the moral thing. I mean, if you look throughout the, the history of Israel and even at the time of Jesus when he came, the Pharisees were, had built this religion around performance, right? If you do a certain number of things, then God's blessing is going to be on you. But if you're, if you're lame or sick or poor, obviously God's blessing is not on you. And Jesus, if you read the Beatitudes when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, he opened it with, hey, God's blessing is for the, the, the person who's destitute, who's sick, who has nothing. He's actually reversing the the 
reality of the day, which said that if you're, you're only blessed and receiving God's blessing if you're living in the moral right, if you're doing the right things. I love here that God's blessing is on the first man and first woman based on nothing that they did, just purely from his own merit, from, his own, from God's own favor and God's own character was just conf- given to them freely. And there was a freedom in that, which I love. Next, um, let's you know, flip over one chapter or one page uh, to the Genesis 22. And we'll, we're going to look at this creation story again from a different lens. It's interesting here um, that you'll notice, and I, when I copied the verse, I don't have the Lord capitalized there in all, all caps, but, um, which it should be. The idea in, in Genesis 22 is it's actually using God's personal name. So Genesis 1, the word Elohim shows up again and again. God created, God Elohim, which is this plural word that refers to God. Here in Genesis 2, we actually, God is using his personal name, Yahweh, um, which has been transliterated at YHWH. And in a lot of translations, it's Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. So um, his actual personal name is used in Genesis 2, which is interesting. It's a more intimate picture of his creation. And here he says in verse 22, the rib he had taken out of the man, the Lord God built up into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And this is, you know, keep in mind in the context, this is right after Adam had named all the animals. So he was given rule over creation. The naming was actually a very significant thing in Hebrew culture. The naming was really giving them an identity. So he was, he was actually fulfilling his mandate that God had given him in Genesis 1. He's actually ruling over creation by naming them. There's a certain power and authority when you name something. And we see that throughout the Bible. If you trace it, you know, when God changes someone's name, it's a big deal. And God has the authority to go, no, this is who you really are. This is your identity. And so here, Adam had just named all the animals two by two. And finally, um, God built up into a woman, took a rib out of man, built it up into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man, his response is just explosion into this excited poem, this poetry. And he basically says, this one at last is bone, of my, bone from my bones, flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. What I love about this, I love, I noticed this when I was reading it yesterday. Um, this one, I love that he uses the word at last. Like he's, you can almost hear his excitement. He's like, at last, finally, finally I have my match. I have this perfect creation that, that's perfect for me that God made. And he's excited and he's in love and he responds with this beautiful poetry. It's bone from my bones, flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman for out of man she was taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and attaches himself to his wife, and the two become one. Now, what's interesting here is that um, in Genesis 1, we see the word um, Adam used um, for the word man. The plural form of the word Adam is actually earth. So the, the plural of, I forget what it is in Hebrew, but the plural of Adam means like earth, the actual earth. But here, Adam actually names both himself and the woman, Ish and, um, Isha and Ishi. He actually here um, names both himself and his wife. And again, it's fulfilling that creation mandate by he's, he's actually naming her and he's naming himself. He's giving himself a, a new name and a new identity. 
And then it says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother, attaches himself to his wife, and the two become one. What I want to key in on here is verse 25. Both were naked, the man and his wife, but they had no feeling of shame. Here in this, this creation story, we see that men and women were created for attachment. And that speaks of sexual union. It also speaks of our uh, whole body, whole soul union. Emotional, spiritual, physical, and sexual. That this, this union of this man and woman attaching themselves to each other, becoming one. The idea is there's this beautiful unity here that's created between the first man and first woman. And that's a template for marriage and what, well, how God defines marriage. But what I also want to want to Keon in here, as it says in verse 25, nakedness, it carried no feeling of shame, which is even hard to even imagine in our culture in our day. I mean, so many of us have, um, I mean, there's a reason why there's a recurring dream that some of us have, or a recurring nightmare, rather, that we're, you know, in public spaces, like, naked or in our underwear running around. It's like, it's like, right? Like, it's a known thing that we, it's like, that's, for some of us, that's our worst nightmare, right? It's just being in a public space at school, and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have any clothes on. <laughs> and there's a, there's a sense in which we all know as humans, there's, there's some amount of shame with that, right? It's like, I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to be seen. And, it, and there's, a, there's all different reasons why that is, but it's amazing and incredible here that nakedness, this idea of being exposed, and again, as we start to build and bridge back to Ephesians, let's not think of just physically being exposed, but actually your whole person being exposed and there's no shame. There's no sin at this point. Everything is beautiful and perfect. There's no feeling of regret. There's no feeling of shame at all. The first man and first woman were free. At this point in the story, they were able to be attached to each other in every single way and be free of any sin and encumberment. I mean, if you think about any of you who are married in this room and you think about what it means to be fully known fully exposed to each other without any ever feeling shame, without, you know, someone knowing your innermost thoughts and hearts, someone knowing your sins and your failures. And it's hard for us to even to imagine this, this, this scenario, but I want us to just think about it for a minute of what it would be like, because it's hard to even imagine. So in Genesis 3... The immediate effect of the fall in Genesis 3.17, the first thing that happens after um, it says Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to her husband, he ate the fruit. Genesis 3.17, the first response, the immediate response is to cover their nakedness, which I find fascinating. Like, why is that the thing? I mean, they're eating fruit, right? They're listening to the serpent. But the first thing that happens is they cover up their nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together. They were ashamed they hid from, and then later it says they actually hid from God. They didn't even hide from God first. The first thing they did was cover their own nakedness. And there's a sense in which the fall, when they sinned, brought into the world this idea that now, because of my sin, the thing that I chose to do, the thing that I chose to rebel against God, the response is to physically cover their, their bodies, this feeling of shame enters the world. And I think. I want us to think about this as Christians, of what it, this idea of shame. And I think, think about, um, just think about our lives, and we are aware of our shortcomings, right? How many of you are aware of your, your, your faults and your shortcomings? Okay. 
How many of you feel a sense of shame in that when you've made a mistake? Right? Shame is this thing that comes and we feel awful, right? We feel awful about ourselves. Shame is also something cyclical that happens with patterns of sin. If you look at you know, people um, that are caught in patterns of addiction and sin, whether it's alcoholism, pornography, drugs, um, other things, right? Like that, The pattern there is a pattern of shame. Shame actually keeps you in this cycle of feeling, well, I messed up, and now you get, you get stuck in the rut, and, you, and it keeps continuing around. And this human story, right? This is the story of every human being after the fall from now on. So Genesis 2 was perfect and beautiful. Genesis 3 onward through the end of the Bible is this picture of now we're living in a new reality, which is nakedness and shame. But I want to um, look to Hebrews, and then we're going to kind of couple a couple of verses from Ephesians, and we'll kind of wrap up. So the human story in Genesis 3 onward was human story was associated with nakedness and shame. But Jesus, in Hebrews 2, it says, at 12, verse 2, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He scorned all human shame on the cross. And he actually himself was naked as he hung on the cross. So here he is, he's in, the, he's in the situation that every one of us human beings fear, which is being publicly exposed naked. And he was physically naked, hanging on the cross, but also taking all of our sin and shame. All of that internally, that feeling of unworthiness, that feeling that we are not worth anything. He took all of that on himself. He didn't just take, you know, um, the effect of our sin away. He actually became sin. And he took that shame. He hung on the cross bearing all of our shame which was just amazing to me as I was tracing this picture from Genesis 3, naked and unashamed, now naked and, and ashamed in Genesis 3. And now Jesus is on the cross naked and he's taking all of our shame. Wow. You know, like I, it started to connect for me like what this reality that God wants us to live in is complete. Like to start to see Jesus actually did that for us. He actually lived all of our worst nightmares in so many ways. That's incredible. But now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Ephesians 1, I'm going to read, we, we just read this, but before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ to be his people, to be without blemish, right? Where you think of, even when we think of our physical bodies, we think we have shame, right? We feel, there's a sense we want to cover ourselves up. There's a sense in which we're not proud of the way we look physically even, right? That's, there's so much in our culture today, in our world, that's for both men and women, predominantly with, with women in some ways, but even with men, that wants to, to shame us to feel like because our body looks a certain way or there's blemishes, we don't want people to see that. We want to cover it up. But he chose us to be his people without blemish in his sight, to be full of love, and he predestined us to be adopted as his children. This idea of adoption as children, this language of family, it brings me back to my wedding day when... Um, Colsey and I are, are in a few days. Um, we're going to be have been married for ten years, and I just think about that. And I think about the day that we got married was the day we, we became family. When she was invited into my family, I was invited into hers, and we became one new family. Just like God has adopted us as His children, and that's in marriage. We start to see this reversal of this idea of naked and unashamed, because marriage is a place 
where it starts to become safe. And even then, it's not perfect, and it's broken, and it's shattered, but where nakedness and unashamed starts to actually get lived out in some small way. Not just physically, but emotionally, when we start to have someone that knows everything about us, that knows us better than anyone else, even sometimes knows us better than ourselves, but is there to love us perfectly. And again, that's not always perfect, right? Our first years of our marriage were awful. I mean, we fought so bad. And I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it was really, really bad. But this reality of naked and unashamed begins to start preversing in marriage. And where I want to land is actually a sneak preview of Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 33. Here Paul says, this is why in the words of scripture, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He's in the midst of this passage talking about husbands and wives and their roles. And then he kind of breaks and he goes, This is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is hidden here a great truth, which I take to refer to Christ and to the church, but it applies also to each one of you. The husband must love his wife as his very self, and the wife must show reverence for her husband. What I love about this is that Paul actually connects it to something even deeper. He goes, naked and unashamed, starts to unravel in Christian marriage where this beautiful picture is created of it's a safe place to be naked, not just physically, but emotionally and and in every way, to be known. It's a safe place to be known, and it's a safe place to receive love. And Paul actually breaks from his passage in Ephesians 5 and says, actually, this is a picture of Jesus in the uh, church. Christian marriage is actually painting a picture for the whole world of what Jesus' love for the church is. This adoptive love, this love that brings in and says, you're my family now, and this is a safe place to, be, to let your hair down, to let, let yourself be known, to let yourself come out from under those feelings of shame that we constantly live in. And I, I love that this reality is, as Paul's painting, I believe, in this first section of Ephesians here is to go, what it looks like to live the new identity is to live without shame. And so for the response, it's, it's really simple. Um, Simple, but it's not easy. It's what does it look like to start living without shame? Um, in my own personal journey over this past year, um, I started to, through some counseling, realize like a big source of my uh, depression that I've that I wrestled with for years was actually this feelings of shame that I've just been living with. That just kind of accepted, right? I just have these this view of myself that's really low. And my counselor, you know, um, uh, who was a committed Christian and a pastor, and he was actually sharing with me and going, you know what? You, you need to love the person that God made you. You need to love who you are. And I, what stood out to me as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about shame is that there is so much in this world, you guys, that is wants you to feel shame. And there's so much that's even designed into the, the systems of our culture, like the patterns of social media, the, 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 the nature of following people and looking in on other people's lives, that we, we actually start to feel ashamed, right? We see someone else on vacation, and, and we go, man, they're on vacation again. Why, why, can't, why can't I get my act together? Why can't I you know, make enough money to go on a cool vacation every year? Or why? We start comparing ourselves, right? And what we do in that is this sense in which we feel like we're not worthy. And that's like a small example of it. But for some of us, the shame comes from deeper places, right? It comes from places where we were abused, where we were hurt, where we were, we were treated awful, where we were hurt by other people. We were let down by those who were supposed to love us, those who were supposed to care for us. And so I think 
God today is asking us this question of what does it look like to start living without shame? What does it look like to walk in the Christian life and the Christian community in a way that's naked and unashamed? To live and to say, you know what? I have flaws. I need help. And to come together and to come around each other and to start to live that out. To start to go, you know what? Shame is actually keeping me from all that God has for me because the identity that God has given us is children. And the thing I love about children is that like young children especially, they don't carry the sense of shame with them. I mean, they start to when they, when they make mistakes and sin and you're correcting them and everything, but like, there's a sense in which really young children, they don't even have that. They don't have a sense of shame at all. They just, they're who they are. Good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> and there's something really beautiful about that. But I believe God's inviting us into this question today to say, what does it look like to start living your life free from the entanglements of feeling like you're unworthy. And also, what does it look like to love the person that you are today? God doesn't just love us, our future selves. He doesn't just say, hey, I love the future you, or the you in 10 years once you've, you've grown a little bit. He goes, no, I love you today. And I believe God actually wants us to love ourselves today. Love our bodies today. What does it look like to actually love our bodies the way we look like today? and to be proud of who we are and to be proud of who God has made us to be. Because if we're not, if we don't enter into that, we're never actually going to, maybe we are unhealthy, right? Maybe there's unhealthy patterns in our lives that, that we're living, but shame would just keep us in that pattern. Maybe God wants us to just go, you know what? Love who you are today. All your flaws, all your wrinkles, all your extra 20 pounds, <laughs> all, of, all of that. And what would it look like to accept and love who you are today and then become a healthier version of you and to actually say, God, what does it look like for me to be healthier? Not just physically, that's part of it, spiritually, emotionally. What does it look like for me to grow with you now and to become a healthy, robust person? And I think it starts here in our passage without shame to stop looking at ourselves as unworth it, that we're not worth it, to stop looking at ourselves like we don't deserve the love of God or we don't deserve grace or we don't deserve anything, but we deserve everything that God has given us because we're his children. And to live that way, the way that Adam and Eve first lived, where there was blessing, there was nothing that they did, they were just blessed, and there was no feeling of shame. So um, I'm going to have Peter come up if, uh, and start, start playing. We'll do some worship, and we'll have some uh, response time, and, and maybe after the first song. But I want you guys to reflect on this throughout the first song is just to start thinking about this. If you have kids that are preschool age, go and grab them from the class um, and then come back here and we'll, we'll start worshiping together. Um, if you have grade school kids, look for your kids and they'll come and um, they'll come and sit with you. But I really want you to take this first song and really just start thinking about what would it look like to live without shame? Where are the areas that God really wants to me to grow and work on this? And I'll pray. God, I, I thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're a God of love, that you're a God of grace, that you're a God that invites us into your family and that gives us everything that we need. God, I just pray that you would help us to live a life without shame, that you would help us to learn what it means to love, that you would help us to learn what it means to grow, that you would help us to learn what it means to live 
in the fullness of our identity in you. So I just pray for this today. I pray as we respond, as we worship, that you would, um, that you would be present, God, that you would come and heal us and minister to us, that you would be here in this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name.